and welcome to the second part of our Witchcraft and Magic After Dark podcast. I'm Gemma. And I'm Emily. In this podcast, which we have named Gemma's Magical Q&A, that for certain absolutely doesn't include mentions of the Holy Foreskin, probably. We're picking up where I left off with the advent of Christianity and we'll end with modern day magic. As we said last week, given the amount of information, we aren't going to be able to cover everything in detail, but that doesn't mean we consider it in unimportant it will just likely be covered in a separate blog post or podcast so it can get the attention that it deserves so we've tried to give a bit of an overview and then focus on individual stories so the only reason we're able to put out as much content as we do is with the support of our patrons and if you enjoy our podcast or our post and you'd like to become a patron you can do so by clicking on the link below okay so let's dive in to the podcast where are we starting? So we're going to be keeping the TARDIS in ancient Greece. Yes, I'm sticking with the TARDIS theme mainly because I watched the Doctor Who episode on the Witchfinders earlier. Fair. So we're staying in ancient Greece, but we're going to go forward a few years to 312 when the Emperor Constantine converted Christianity. So a year later, he issues the Edict of Milan, which legalises Christianity, allowing Christians the freedom to worship throughout the empire without fear of persecution. So Christianity comes along, what happens to magic? So for a while the two coexist, many Christians just saw witchcraft as a quote, perilous hangover from pagan times, whilst others such as the philosopher and theologian Saint Augustine of Hippo, who was writing in around 400, insisted that witchcraft was just an illusion and didn't exist. He wasn't alone in this belief and in 643 the king of Lombardy issued an edict saying quote, let nobody presume to kill a foreign serving maid or female slave as a witch, for it is not possible, nor ought be believed by Christian minds. I'm sensing a but. Yeah, it didn't last long. Um, in 747, Pope Zachary called the Second Council of Clove Show in England and forbade all, quote, wizardry, sorcery, divinings, fortune-tellings, periapts, spells conjuring and incantations what's a perapt it's an item worn as a charm or talisman so the canon episcopi of 906 stated that quote bishops and their officials must labor with all their strength to uproot thoroughly from their parishes the pernicious art of sorcery malefice invented by the devil and if they find a man or woman follower of this weakness to eject them foully disgraced from their parishes. That is a sort of a part of canon law. So the church began to consider magic a threat because it appeared to have so much in common with heresy. Both were described as the work of the devil and as such heretics like the Cathars begin to fall under suspicion of sorcery and witches begin to be suspected of heresy. So that's the church. What about other rulers? As you would expect, Christian leaders followed the rule of the church and the church's stance on magic. In the 770s, Emperor Leo VI issued an edict which ended the tolerance of benign magic spells and amulets. And in England, Alfred the Great implemented a ban on witchcraft. Quote, those women who are wont to receive enchanters and magicians, wizards and witches, thou shalt not suffer them to live. And his grandson, King Athelred, ordered soothsayers, magicians and whores to desist under the pain of death. 
This stance continued with James VI of Scotland, the first of England, going so far as to write a book on witchcraft called Demonology. It's the only book on witchcraft written by a reigning monarch. And it was not until the reign of King George II in 1753 that the Witchcraft Act was repealed. I mean, that's a long time to have it banned. It really is. I mean, it was still, as we'll see later on, in Canada, it was illegal to call yourself a witch up until 2018. And I think it was the 1950s in England, it was still illegal to call yourself a witch. It's mad to think, isn't it? Especially because it's, it's also, like a church rule, it's not necessarily like a state rule like a church rule first yeah i mean the church has got its own form of magic is there much difference between a spell and a prayer or an amulet for protection and a saint christopher medal which is supposed to protect travelers there's a very fine line between religion and magic we mentioned that last week didn't we was like when when does a miracle become a miracle and it's not actually magic that line is very difficult to tread it, it really is so all religions have a magic element or a supernatural element to them perhaps none more so than voodoo okay so what is voodoo okay so this is a really quick overview of what i've discovered is a really complex belief system and i'm going to apologize now if i mess up any of the words or get anything wrong i've only read two books two articles and a couple of web pages on it so I'm by no means an expert So the precise origins of voodoo are unknown, but most agree it originated in Africa and then spread throughout the rest of the world as a consequence of the Atlantic slave trade. Voodoo translates to spirit or great spirit, and it's a belief system which is a combination of nature worship, ancestor worship, and belief in a supreme being called the Mawu, who is omnipotent but distant from the living. Mawu bore seven sons, which were given dominion over different areas and act as intermediaries between the great spirit and the people so the first is Sakvatar the eldest son was entrusted with the earth and is the voodoo of earth illness and healing he is represented by black white and red spots as well as scissors Sibiso is the voodoo of the sky and justice he is represented by a thunderbolt, the ram, fire, and the double axe. Agbe is the voodoo of the sea and is represented by a serpent, which is considered a symbol of life. Gu is the voodoo of iron and war and meets out justice. Age is the voodoo of agriculture, forests, animals, and birds. Joe is the voodoo of air and invisibility. And Legba is the youngest son who received no gifts because they had already been spread among his elder brothers. As such, he is, quote, a wild card among the pantheon. Thus, he is considered to be the voodoo of the unpredictable and is also the voodoo of daily tragedies and unforeseen events. So each of the sons of Mawu have their own sons and each govern facet of their father's realm, multiplying the number of spirits. So voodoo is a religion. Yeah, it was declared an official religion in Benin in 1996. Benin is considered the centre of the voodoo world. Its annual voodoo festival held on the 10th of January each year is considered one of West Africa's most vibrant and colourful events and it draws tourists from all around the world. But voodoo has this reputation of being a bad thing. Is that true? No, I mean voodoo, like every religion, has followers who use it for good and who use it for bad. And much of what we know or think we know comes from Hollywood tropes. 
and you know Hollywood is known taking a bit of a license with these things I think it's important to remember that people have perverted Christianity to do evil acts but they've also done good acts and it's the same with voodoo and Catholicism and Islam and every religion basically so no human sacrifice no the practice of human sacrifice ended almost a century ago which I know is not a great deal of time but today when a sacrifice is required an animal is used and what about uh, voodoo dolls? I'm all familiar with the Hollywood trope of the hero being beaten up by a voodoo practitioner with a doll that looks like them sticking pins in them and holding them over fire and things. However, this is unheard of in the original voodoo and mostly voodoo dolls are popular in New Orleans just to please the tourists. You said Benin in Africa, but isn't New Orleans in America known for voodoo? It is. So the slaves that were brought to the French colony in southern Louisiana, which is now New Orleans, were able to stay together in large groups and this allowed them to preserve their culture and practices. They would make and wear charms for healing or protection. And Louisiana voodoo began to absorb elements of Catholicism by using uh, like votive candles, incense, crucifixes and holy water in their voodoo rituals. Today, it's estimated that only 15% of the population in New Orleans practices voodoo. So what about voodoo queens? So voodoo queens made a living selling spells, charms and amulets and other magical tools of the voodoo practice. They're very popular in New Orleans and their authority is kind of considered sacred. One of the most well-known voodoo queens is Marie Laveau, who is considered by many to be the most powerful voodoo queen of them all. So who was she? So Marie was born in September 1801 to Charles Trudeau and Marguerite Henry. Little is known about her early life, but it would have been quite comfortable given that her father owned multiple grocery stores. On the 4th of August, 1819, she married Jax Paris, a refugee from the Haitian Revolution. However, just a year later, he died leaving Marie and their two children behind. She later entered into a 33-year relationship with Christophe Dominic Dominique de Galpian, a nobleman of French descent. The two were not allowed to marry as interracial marriages were illegal at the time. It's reported they had 15 children, but it's unclear if that's true. So for a time, Marie worked as a hairdresser, but is better known for her career as a voodoo queen, where she acted as a healer, hexer and fortune teller, consulted by the highest and the lowest of the city. She would hold public rituals, which would attract hundreds of thousands of devotees. As well as voodoo rituals, she nursed those suffering with yellow fever, posted bail for free women of colour and would visit condemned prisoners and pray with them in their final hours. Throughout her life, Marie remained a devoted Catholic, but voodoo did not really impact with this, so they worked quite well side by side. And it's said that she encouraged many of the African slaves to attend mass, and some suggest she did this to protect them and their true beliefs by hiding under a mask of Catholicism. Marie died on the 17th of June, 1881. However, there are a number of reports of people seeing her around town for weeks after her death. You mean as a ghost? Possibly. I mean, her legacy continues. Like, people still visit her grave today and leave offerings and ask her for help. So, is voodoo magic or a religion? It's a religion. And as much as with Catholicism, Islam and other religions, it has a little bit of magic involved, maybe more so than some of the western religions it feels like it kind of um goes back to some of the religions that i looked at in the last one where in order to get something you have to give something it's not 
it's not based on one god it's based on a pantheon of gods and in order to get whatever you want you actually have to sacrifice something of yourself or that belongs to you in order to get it yeah absolutely and the thing about voodoo is their kind of supreme god is female there is a male equivalent i think called dan don't quote me on that like i said i read a lot but it's a huge topic and i don't feel like i really scratched the surface like i i went for introduction to books but it's something i definitely want to go back and read more about because like everyone i think when i first started reading about it in my head i was expecting to read about human sacrifices and zombies and and things like that but that doesn't seem to be the case it's a lot of community yeah and like you think about like pop culture and it's very much viewed as like a bad thing or people that are using are doing evil things rather than it being this well just a religion it being a religion yeah absolutely that's definitely the thing i think the trouble is hollywood didn't really understand it when it started making movies and that's become a trope that it can't really break yeah i mean if you look back you've got voodoo dolls in indiana jones yeah american horror story has marie laveau in there um, yeah, but it's kind of into, yeah Constantine it's mentioned in pretty much anything that is connected to New Orleans yeah a lot of ghost hunting shows as well they're like oh we're going to do a voodoo ritual and stir up the spirits but if you believe that I mean that would be a bit like going in and saying the Lord's Prayer that could stir up spirits it, I think it's kind of become that the Hollywood version of it is maybe a parody of it it's, it's certainly not certainly doesn't seem to be what the actual religion is but um yeah if i've got anything wrong please do let us know because as i said i i I tried to read as much as i could in the time i had to prepare this but i certainly don't feel like i've read enough also if you have any recommendations of things we should read to learn more about voodoo we'd love to hear them too i definitely want to learn more about it it's something that's always interested me yeah definitely certainly wasn't what i was expecting going in right where are we taking the tardis to next so we're going to hop forward a few centuries to 1470 and the start of the witch craze. I'm assuming that doesn't mean that the witches were popular. No, sadly not. The so-called witch craze lasted from 1470 to 1750 and saw an estimated 90,000 people executed for witchcraft across Europe and America. Whilst there were male victims, most of those targeted were women, especially the older, poorer women who had no male influences in their life. I should mention 90,000 is debated that you can read 50 different sources and get 49 different answers. Just don't believe Dan Brown's estimates. So what made someone a witch? So witches were believed to have entered into the diabolic pact with the devil in which they would renounce their baptism and give their soul to the devil in exchange for powers the pact was sealed with the nocturnal sabbath and the witch placed a kiss on the devil's anus these women would then be able to kill crops raise storms kill people including the king or queen and were known to sacrifice newborn babies and as such they were seen as a threat that needed to be eliminated why was it that people suddenly saw witches everywhere so on the You're Dead to Me podcast, Suzanne Lipscomb pointed out that this was a big question, which feels a little bit like an understatement. It was the time of religious division because of the Reformation, and people were concerned with their soul and began seeing the devil everywhere. From 1560, there was a significant drop in temperature, known as the Little Ice Age, and through this, they held the first frost fair on the Thames in 1607, 
and by the 1680s they were able to roast an ox on the ice over the Thames that's how thick it was in the 1590s there's a four-year period where it rained pretty much continuously across Europe one in four harvests would fail which would lead to famine plague and warfare continue to ravage the population and so all of this quote creates a mental space where accusations can occur so there was another theory put forward as well that a grain fungus spread across Europe which worked like a psychedelic drug giving hallucinations to those who consumed it and another version is that it was a product of sexual hysteria. Okay, I can see why that would affect what would probably be known as the peasant class. Um, But what about the elite, who probably weren't so worried about that? Every sort of section of society would have been concerned with their soul. We, We know this, but I see what you're saying, like a famine and things probably wouldn't have affected the higher classes. But one of the most influential texts on witchcraft at the time was the Malleus Maleficarum, which translates to the Hammer of the Witches. It was written in 1486, mostly by Henrik Kramer, who has been called a superstitious psychopath by Professor Malcolm Gaskill, who taught me during my undergrad. Has no relevance on this, just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, Jacob Sprenger was added as a second author in 1590, but most agreed that it's mostly Kramer's work. It was second only to the Bible in sales until 1678, so it remained popular for a long time. It stated that witches were real and had formed a pact with the devil and as such possessed a real threat. And it was basically a manual to do war on witches. It gave tips on finding and eliminating them. And with the Malleus Maleficarum in print, it was read by people of influence who came to see witchcraft as a threat. So witchcraft was made illegal in the UK in 1542 and made illegal in Scotland in 1563. Also printed on the first page of the Malleus Maleficarum is a reproduction of a papal ball, which, quote, acknowledges that sorceresses are real and harmful through their involvement in the acts of Satan. The ball was dated to 1484, just two years before the Malleus Maleficarum was finished, and its inclusion was designed to give the appearance of the book having kind of the papal stamp of approval. It's a fun fact away from witchcraft for you. The author of the the ball used in the Malleus was Pope Innocent VIII, and he was anything but innocent. Not only did he have a mistress and children, he also mortgaged the papal treasures, including the papal tiara. And for the last three months of his life, he was kept alive by sucking milk from a woman's breast and tried to rejuvenate himself with blood transfusions, which resulted in the death of three young boys. I mean, I know you love those grim facts. I really do. I don't even know what to think. I can get over the fact that he had mistresses and he was having kids. But at what point did he think that sucking milk from a woman's breast was going to help him? I have no idea. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't do my three o'clock meeting. With my wetness. With my, yeah. Love including those little facts. I know how much you enjoy them. It's not as bad as a foreskin. <laughs> that was a whole new level. Okay, moving on. So witches were real and they were arrested, but how did they prove it? So as witchcraft was against the law, it had to be proved. At the time, normally this would have required two witnesses, but that was rare in witchcraft cases, so a confession was needed. So those that were arrested faced a number of tests and tortures designed to make them confess, and these included the infamous swimming test. The idea was that because a witch had rejected 
the water of her baptism, the water would then in turn reject them and they would float in an unnatural manner. Though it had been used in England since around 1612, Matthew Hopkins, the self-appointed witchfinder general, turned it into a public spectacle. He would have the victims doubled over with their arms crossed between their legs and their thumbs tied to their big toes. Another rope was tied around their waist and held by a man on either side. This was to stop the innocent from dying. The victim would then be lowered into the water and allowed to sink and rise three times. However, their guilt was less determined by the water and more by those holding the rope. Speaking of rope, uh, another of the tortures was wrenching. This is when a rope is tied around the victim's head and face and pulled tighter and tighter, and that can cause fractures of the facial bones and of the skull. Thumb screws were also used, and I mean, these did all kinds of damage. They also used sleep deprivation, which was a British invention. Go us. And so a victim would be made to strip naked and would be forced to walk up and down the cold stone floor of the cell without stopping. Obviously, uh, another common one is pricking of the devil's mark. Um, it was believed that the devil would leave a mark on a witch's body. And if poked with a needle, it wouldn't bleed or cause the witch to feel any pain. Uh, today, we'd see them as moles or skin tags or birthmarks. So Matthew Hopkins, again, was said to use his own pricker, which when pressed against the mark, the needle would retract into the handle, ensuring the woman felt no pain and was thus considered guilty. I mean, I'd heard about the the water test and we kind of looked at a mesopotamian version of that as well in our last one and yeah i kind of expected things like thumb screws i'd never heard of wrenching yeah no that's yeah that must have been horrifically painful because not only would the rope burn it would crush yeah because rope's rough isn't it you imagine like we've all like in PE, when you used to slip on the rope and you'd get rope burns. I can't imagine. No. I mean, and also, if, imagine if you were wrenched and then say, oh, they were like, oh, yeah, no, no, you, we're sorry. You're right. You're not a witch. Those marks are not going anywhere. I kind of feel like if you get to the point where you're doing wrenching, you're finding them guilty no matter what. That seems to be the point. Of yeah. It. The point is that Pretty you will confess to anything so that it will stop. That's a recurring theme that we're going to see, actually, as we start looking at some examples of witch trials. And I imagine the sleep but, um, deprivation, you just start to think that you were seeing the devil anyway because you wouldn't have had enough sleep. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I struggle to sleep and I've been awake for several days before and you do start to kind of trip out of it. I didn't know sleep deprivation was a British invention. No. Doesn't seem like a very British thing to do. Um, I mean, withholding tea seems about... Yeah. You will only have water. Yeah, that would get me to... There will be no tea bags. And they didn't have tea bags or something. You know what I mean? That seems like a British thing to do. No Earl Grey and lemon. It will not happen. You will drink it with milk. Like the peasant you are. Professor, I'm putting the milk in first. Witches' cakes were another test. I think this was used in Salem. So they mixed witches' wee with, was it like oats or something, made it into a cake and fed it to the dog. And if the dog died, the witch was guilty. I have never heard that, but that is just grim. Yeah, really, it's grim. I mean, why So much of this dog? is grim, though. <laughs> I know. Um, one part of Germany, uh, the name escapes me now, they actually tortured those who made the accusation to prove they were true, which significantly cut down the number of allegations, because mm. you had to be sure. Yeah. Well, we'll think about 
Mesopotamia, if you made an allegation and couldn't prove it, you were standing in a river to see if you got swept away. Yes. And if you got swept away and somehow survived, you were going to get executed. So we'll definitely, you know, lower that, that risk factor, I think. Yeah, definitely. I also didn't know that, uh, just as a fun fact, I didn't know that the idea of witches having familiars was a British invention. No. And obviously because England and New, well, like America was technically England at the time, that's why the idea was seen there as well. And then yeah. Hollywood's kind of spread it around. Yeah. But yeah, the idea of witches having familiars is a British idea. Oh, that's interesting. Right. Back on All track. the facts. All the facts. Back on track. <laughs> Who was the first woman to be executed as a witch in the UK, since we're on the UK? Yes. So that would be Agnes Waterhouse, who was executed in 1566. I say that. She's the first one we have records of. That's not to say there weren't some beforehand. So Agnes was also known as Mother Waterhouse and was one of three women from the village of Hatfield Peveril accused of witchcraft. The other two women were her sister Elizabeth Francis and her 18-year-old daughter Joan. Agnes's sister Elizabeth Francis was the first to be examined and confessed to having a cat as a familiar which was named Satan, which she had received from her grandmother when she was 12. She said that she kept the cat for 15 years before giving it to her sister Agnes. Elizabeth also claimed that the cat, quote, spoke to her in a strange hollow voice that would do anything in exchange for a drop of blood. She also confessed to stealing sheep, killing several people, including a man named Andrew Biles, who refused to marry her even after he got her pregnant. She then terminated that pregnancy after her cat told her which herbs to use. She also claimed that she'd become unhappy in her marriage and, quote, willed the cat to kill her six-month-old daughter and make her husband lame. She went on to accuse her sister Agnes, saying that she'd given her sister the cat and taught her how to use it. Now, Agnes confessed to first killing one of her pigs to see what she could do. That was how she explained it. But denied that she had succeeded in killing anyone by witchcraft. Her daughter Joan's testimony that the cat existed helped convict the other two women. But the main evidence against Agnes came from her neighbour, the 12-year-old Agnes Brown, who testified that, quote, a demon as a black dog with a face like an ape, a short tail, a chain and a silver whistle around his neck and a pair of horns on his head. She said that in their first encounter, he asked her for some butter, which she refused him. So the dog, who had a key to the milk door, opened the door and got some butter. She also said that the dog later returned for the last time with a knife and threatened to kill her saying quote that he would thrust his knife into my heart but he would make me die i mean i think that's generally what happens if you stab anyone in the heart with a knife but i'm no expert she also provided the most damning piece of evidence when she claimed when she asked the dog who he belonged to he wagged his head towards agnes's house both Agnes and Elizabeth were found guilty and Agnes was hung on the 29th of July 1566 whilst Elizabeth was given a lighter sentence. Although 13 years later she was hanged after a second conviction. Joan was found not guilty and released. I mean my first issue is that they've allowed a 12 year old to tell a story and no one thought that first of all this was a very odd looking dog. It could talk and apparently had a key and could also have a knife. I mean, I don't know what kind of dogs that they had back then, but my dogs would not be able to hold a knife or talk to me. This is very true. It does all sound fanciful. I mean, my 
biggest issue, the talking, stabbing dog aside, is the fact that her sister actually confessed to killing people, terminating a pregnancy and was let go, was given like a lighter sentence. Oh, yeah. I, I can't thought about that. Right? I, I, since I read this case, I'm like, huh, what kind of logic is that? It's very odd. Very odd. Moving on. Where <laughs> are we heading to next? Okay, so we're going to pop back into the TARDIS and we're going to set it for New Berwick in Scotland in 1590. And we're going to look at a witch trial that got the attention of King James VI of Scotland. So King James was no stranger to witchcraft. He witnessed firsthand a coven of witches that confessed trying to kill him and his new wife, Anne of Denmark, after several ships that were supposed to bring Anne from Denmark to Scotland ran into foul weather. It was the case in North Berwick which convinced him that witches were everywhere. Uh, tell us more. So in 1590, David Seaton suspected his young maidservant, Gilly Duncan, of witchcraft. So there's some debate over how old Gilly was when she was accused. Modern day academics believe she was young. And Susanna Lipscomb even suggests that Seaton had a sexual motive for accusing his young maid, perhaps believing that as her master he had a right to her and that the reason she was sneaking off at night was for a romantic liaison. However, the only illustration of her that survives by F. Armitage shows her as an old woman. So Seaton tried to get Gilly to confess, first with thumbscrews and then with wrenching. The more she refused to confess, the more the torture increased. He then searched her body for the devil's mark, which was a blemish on the body, and he found one on her neck, and oddly, this is when she confessed. Um, Susanna Lipscomb again suggests this might have been a mark left over from her romantic liaison, and, and Gilly panicked, but obviously we don't know. So Gilly confesses, and this is the first instance of a witch confessing to working for the devil. And this would have far-reaching consequences. In November, she was taken to the old Tollbooth prison, where she repeated her confession and named eight others who were part of her coven. When those eight people were rounded up and questioned, probably under torture, they named more people, and this led to around 100 people being accused. This kind of showed that it was not an isolated incident, rather some big conspiracy. Whilst being tortured, Gilly had said that the Coven had worked in league with those in Copenhagen who'd been executed for trying to kill the king and his wife. This got the king's full attention and he became directly involved in the case. Miss Sampson was named by Gilly as the leader of the coven and under torture Agnes confessed to the attempted murder of the king. After this she was taken twice to Holyrood House and directly questioned by the king where she repeated the confession that she'd given in jail. The king was not convinced by her confession until Agnes recounted pillow talk he had shared with his new bride on their wedding night when they were seemingly alone. And this is said to be what convinced him. So if she's not a witch, why would she confess? And how did she know what was said on their wedding night? Susanna Lipscomb suggests two possible motives for Agnes confessing. One was that she was enjoying this moment in the spotlight and that she enjoyed frightening the king. And the second, which is more likely that she hoped it would end the torture. And in that regard, she was correct because uh, the king did in fact order her torture be stopped. As to how she knew what was said, Agnes was an experienced midwife, so it could have just been a lucky guess. Or, I mean, 
a king never really had privacy back then so it's more likely that a servant or an advisor had heard the conversation and shared it with others and it just spread that way however she knew it on the 28th of january 1591 agnes was taken to castle hill in edinburgh to be executed we know she wasn't alone in being executed that day but as to how many others were with her is unknown it's likely she was garroted before the fire lit which was considered a mercy in total around 200 were accused and 70 were found guilty and sentenced to death and what happened to gillis so she remained in jail for another year and then she too was executed so you said obviously this case got the king's attention but how did he respond to it so now in james's mind there was an international satanic order out to kill him and the only way to stop them was to kill them first his involvement gave witch hunting the royal stamp of approval and it spread across scotland over the following years and however had avoided wide-scale witch trials but with elizabeth I's death on the 24th of march 1603 king james became king james the sixth of scotland the first of england taking the quote witch craze infection south to england as I said, James is the only reigning monarch to write a book on witchcraft and demonology basically said that witches were everywhere. They wanted to cause harm and anyone who didn't believe it was at best a fool or at worst in league with the devil. The book was about making sure the guilty were punished and the innocent were released. And it was very popular in England as it gave people an insight into the new king who was otherwise an unknown entity. The book and the methods of getting a confession seem to be quite like opposed to each other. Yeah, well, James considered himself a philosopher and a scholar. So I don't think his intention was to stoke up fear. I think his intention was to say the witches are real, this is what's happening. It certainly wasn't in the league of the Malleus Maleficarum. Also, you might have noticed that. Um, I, I didn't include this and I should have done. So in Scotland, witches were burned because heresy. In England, they were hung or crushed because it was murder. And like magic just happened to be the weapon. How do they make that distinction, do you know? I think it was just England, Scotland thing. I don't actually know how. I just seems a bit of a weird distinction to have. Well, England and Scotland were diff were separate at the time. And, oh yeah, until James. Yeah, but it just remained that way. So was this the only case that the king became involved with? No, in sixteen oh five, the king became involved in a case in Oxford. So Brian Gunter brought his daughter Anne before the king and claimed she'd been sick since the previous summer and would have fits and vomit pins claimed that during her fits Anne had seen the three women who had cursed her and named them as Agnes Pepwell her illegitimate daughter Mary and Elizabeth Gregory Gunter wanted the women brought to justice but the king had reservations about the case and ordered Anne to be examined by Richard Bancroft the Archbishop of Canterbury who was a known skeptic didn't take the Archbishop long to realise that Anne was faking her symptoms and had been coerced by her father who wanted revenge against one of the accused. Now Gunther was just fined and sentenced to three years in jail 
And although we don't know for certain, it's likely that Anne was pardoned as she'd been forced by her father. So what happened to Anne is unknown. But in October 1605, King James wrote that she had fallen in love with one of the archbishop's servants and the two were planning to marry with royal blessing. I can't help but feel that Brian Gunter's punishment was exceptionally light considering what would have happened to the three women he accused had he been believed. Well, yeah, exactly. And did you say it was Germany where you had to, like, make sure that you had it just right? Yeah. So yeah, one of the German provinces. Yeah, so imagine if that was, like, the case in this. Like, he really did get off lightly. Oh, I mean, absolutely. It's insane. So are there any more cases? Yes, kind of. So King James was actually indirectly involved in the Pendle Hill witch trials of 1612. And I think Pendle Hill is probably one of the most famous witch cases in England. So I'm going to give a quick overview. I'm not going to go into it in too much detail because I know we were planning to do a whole podcast on Pendle Hill. So Alison Device encountered a peddler named John Law and asked him for some pins. Pins were used in all sorts of magical spells. Now, Alison said that John Law refused because she only wanted a few pins, but his John Law's son claimed that his father refused because Alison had no money. So Alison cursed him, and a few moments later, he stumbled to the ground. Now, Susanna Litscombe suggests that, given his symptoms, he may have actually just suffered a stroke. When he recovered, Law made no allegations against Alison, However, she was overcome with guilt at what she thought she had done and confessed and asked for his forgiveness. Because of this, Alison, her mother Elizabeth and her brother James were summoned to appear before Roger Noel, the Justice of the Peace for Pendle, on the 30th of March, 1612. Alison once again confessed that she had sold her soul to the devil and that she had told him to lame John Law after he had called her a thief. When questioned further, Alison accused her grandmother, Old Demdike, and also members of the Chattox family. And some believe she accused the Chattox family because the two were, had been feuding. The two families had been feuding for years. In total, 12 were accused and held together in a cramped, dark and cold cell in Lancaster Castle. Uh, sadly, Old Demdike died in the cell before the trial began on the 17th of August, 1612. When John Law entered the court to give his testimony Alison was said to have fallen to her knees and cried as she begged for forgiveness but the most significant witness was nine-year-old Janet Device who gave evidence against her mother and brother condemning them even as her mother screamed and cursed at her until Elizabeth was dragged from the courtroom as you said earlier the testimony of a child is not exactly great and normally it would not have been allowed but the king suspended all normal rules of evidence for witch trials. And so her evidence and the evidence of other children stood. Of the 12 accused, 11 went to trial, 10 were found guilty and hung, and one was found not guilty. So Alison was an example of someone who truly believed she had supernatural powers. And ultimately it led her to the gallows, which is quite sad. Yeah, definitely. I just don't understand this whole idea of allowing children to testify to something like that. It just doesn't seem to make much sense because, I mean, imagine 
that kid is just like really hacked off with you. All they oh, yeah. need to do is cry witch. And one tantrum can become a whole family being put to death. Exactly. And, and also children are susceptible. So you have to wonder if somebody outside had coached her. A bit like the case before where the father had kind of coerced his daughter. Yeah, exactly. It's the fact that so the king had basically said children's testimonies were allowed in cases of witchcraft. So it was it it stood. I mean, she condemned her mother, brother, and sister to the gallows, and her grandmother had died in the cell. Yeah. As I said, Pendle Hill is it's a bit like Salem is in America. Pendle Hill is probably the most well known. Yeah. Witch trial in England. People still go to up Pendle Hill on um, Halloween. It's like a big tourist thing. Yeah, I've not. I'd like to go. Maybe not on Halloween. Don't want to tempt yeah. fate. Yeah, me neither. So, was everyone that went to court found guilty? No, the Pendle Hill witch trial wasn't the only one to take place in August of sixteen twelve. The Samelessbury trial also took place and this one had different motives and and different outcome. A 14-year-old girl named Grace Sauerbutz accused eight people including her grandmother Janet Burley and her aunt Elizabeth Burley of witchcraft, child murder and cannibalism. The first thing the presiding judge Sir Edward Bromley did was discharge five of those accused leaving Janet, Ellen and a lady named Jane Southworth to stand trial for, quote, diverse devilish and wicked acts called witchcraft, enchantments, charms and sorceries in and upon one Grace Sauerbutz. All three women pleaded not guilty and Grace was called to testify. In her testimony, she claimed the women had vexed her for years by levitating her to the top of a haystack by her hair and attempting to persuade her to drown herself in the ribble. They were also accused of attending sabbats where they met with four black things going upright and yet not like men in the face and with whom they ate, danced and had sex, causing the death of a baby belonging to one Thomas Walshman and his wife, after which Ellen and Janet dug up the body from its grave to cook and eat and to make a magic ointment which made them change themselves into other shapes. Thomas Walsham was called to testify and confirmed that his child had died of unknown causes. He also confirmed that Grace had actually been the one to find the dead infant. Two other witnesses, John Singleton and William Acre, were also called and claimed Sir John Southworth, Jane Southworth's father-in-law, believed her to be an evil woman and a witch. Talk about hearsay. When asked by the judge to answer the charges against them, the three women were said to fall into their knees and pleaded for him to have Grace re-examined, which Bromley, he granted this request and ordered two justices of the peace, William Lee and Edward Chisnell, to examine Grace more closely. During their examination, Grace confessed to the story being untrue and to the work of being Jane Southwood's uncle, Christopher Southworth, a.k.a. Master Thompson, a Jesuit priest who was in hiding in the same Salmsbury area. When asked why Master Thompson might fabricate such a story, 
the three women could think of no reason other than they attended an Anglican church. Upon hearing the new evidence, Bromley ordered the jury to find the defendants not guilty, as Grace Saubarts was, quote, the perjuring tool of a Catholic priest. Some believe the whole thing was nothing more than a show trial which highlighted Catholic plotters. You have to remember this was just seven years after the gunpowder plot. And the anti-papist sentiments would have also pleased King James. Furthermore, the acquittal showed that judges were impartial. There's no record of the priest facing any consequences for his action. Seems like a bit of an elaborate PR scheme then. Yes, definitely. Everything they were accused of seems to be things that had happened in other witch trials. Kind of like, I'll take some of this, some of this, some of this, and put together an accusation of you digging up dead babies and eating them. But also, again, the the male who coerced and tried to get these women executed for witchcraft faced no consequences. So in the cases that you've told or talked about, most of these people that are accused of women, why is that? I mean, it's definitely true. In England, 90% of those accused were women. But a little fun fact for you, in Iceland, it was the opposite. And 92% of those accused were actually men. Also, Russia had more male witches than female witches, which is interesting. As to why, there have been many explanations put forward. Some believe that women were more susceptible because they were considered sexually insatiable at the time and therefore more likely to commit sexual sin. So the devil could easily tempt them to have sex with him. Um, this is an idea that goes back to Eve in the Garden of Eden. I don't know if fun fact is the right one. Another fun fact for you, and this one is just to gross Emily out. The devil's semen was said to be icy cold. I mean, that right there is a reason not to go to the side of the devil, isn't it? I mean, how is that meant to be like, oh, what a fun thing. I need some of that in my life. I mean, really. Carry I don't on. even know how they came up with that one. No. So it's also a period when we see women gaining power. Obviously, England had had independent queens in Mary I, the very short-lived Jane Grey, and Elizabeth I. And across Europe, queens were ruling as regents for young sons. Most of those accused were older women with no male influences in their life. And Susanna Lipscomb suggests that there are two reasons for this. Uh, first, it takes time to build up reputation as a witch. And no one wants to accuse somebody before they're sure. I mean, after all, if somebody's really a powerful witch and you go and accuse them and they don't get taken to prison, you're probably going to be in trouble. And secondly, she cites this culture of motherhood. So as widows, these women would likely not have been having sex. So we're tempted by the devil. And beyond that, they were too old to bear children. And so we're not really needed in society as much. And this is why they attacked young mothers and sacrificed newborns. And so they became kind of anti-mothers. And I know I've quoted Susanna Lipscomb a lot, but she taught me my witchcraft and magic in early modern Europe module during my undergrad many moons ago. Go with what you know. Exactly. I have a feel about this <laughs> idea of anti-mothers, like just because you can't have kids anymore, suddenly you hate people that care. You know, women in that period were pregnant 
every other year from the time they got married. So they were always quite curvaceous and had newborn baby weight. I don't know what you call it, pregnancy weight. So when you couldn't have children anymore, everything kind of sagged, which kind of made them look witchy, I guess. If looking witches. I will, uh, I will look out for that. If I wake up one day yeah. and suddenly I've sagged. <laughs> my first message to you will be, do I look witchy today? Fetch the rope. I need to check I've not become a witch. <laughs> Bring the thumb screws. <laughs> it implies I've just got a set of thumb screws lying around. I mean, it'll be a few years. Just on top of the eunuch, I get them down and dust yeah. them off. You know, you have your but you have your cases of your collection items. You'll have a foreskin ring, some thumb <laughs> screws, maybe some devil semen just in a jar. You just bring it out at parties. <laughs> so when did the witch trials stop? So witch trials became uh, sporadic as the mentality of people and the way evidence was used starts to change. And by 1750, mostly the witch craze was at an end. What's interesting is it wasn't the law that changed, but people's attitude. And then that's what changed the law. So as I said, you needed to prove witchcraft because it was a crime, but witchcraft didn't produce many reliable witnesses. So a confession was needed, but people began to realize you couldn't necessarily trust the confession that had been gained under torture. It's also the time of the scientific revolution, so things that had seemed unexplained and supernatural began to be explained. So yeah, I found it really interesting that it wasn't the law that stopped the witch trials, it was people's attitude, and then the law kind of caught up with it. Yeah. So, obviously as it's kind of winding down in people's thoughts, did that mark an end for witch trials? No. In 1943, Helen Duncan, who would become known as the Blitz Witch, became the last woman in Britain convicted of witchcraft. Please tell me that she wasn't executed. No, she was sentenced to nine months in Holloway Prison. Okay, so you need to tell us a bit more about her, because it's worth thinking like 1943 and witch I'm just going to give you a quick overview, but if you want to read more, we actually, I actually wrote a post, a whole blog post about her last October. I think it was one of our first blog posts. So you can go onto our website and find that. But Helen was born on the 25th of November, 1897 in Calendar, Scotland. And it said that she exhibited psychic abilities from a young age. So initially her parents weren't worried because they both had female relatives with the gift and just believed she'd grow out of it. However, there were several instances over her childhood and her abilities just seemed to grow. So her mother took her to the local doctor to check if anything was physically wrong. So whilst there, Helen was said to have warned the doctor not to go out that night. However, he did, and his car skidded off the road in a snowstorm, claiming his life. This led the local Presbyterian minister to accuse Helen of, quote, consorting with the devil, that old chestnut and faced with growing hostility Helen moved away from home at just 16 where she went is unknown but by the time World War One rolled around she was living in Dundee and working in a munitions factory before becoming a nurse 
It was while she was working as a nurse that she was introduced to Henry Duncan and the two married in 1916. Throughout their marriage, Henry supported Helen's gifts and encouraged her to use them. So Helen and Henry had six children. So you can imagine that life was quite the financial struggle. And so Henry encouraged Helen to use her skills to bring in some money. However, Helen was initially reluctant given her earlier experiences, but the need for money and her desire to help people who were looking for some comfort after losing loved ones in the war changed her mind. Word quickly spread and by the mid 1920s, her services were in high demand. Now, in 1934, Helen had a brush with the law. She was found guilty of a fray and fraud and fined 10 shillings, which is around £25 in today's money. But her popularity continued to grow. And by the 1940s, she was travelling all around the UK, holding hundreds of stances in spiritualist churches and homes of supporters. The outbreak of the Second World War saw demand for her services increase even more. However, in 1941, Helen would hold two seances that would have serious repercussions. The first took place in Edinburgh on the 24th of May 1941. Now, during her seance, Helen's spirit guides made a number of claims, including that a British battleship had just been sunk, Russia would enter the war on the side of the Allies, which at the time seemed highly unlikely, and that the war would end in two big bangs. Leaving the seance, one of the attendees at Brigadier Firebrace returned home and listened to the news. Hearing nothing about a ship being sunk, he rang the Admiralty and the official denied it. However, the following morning, the same official rang the Brigadier back and confirmed that HMS Hood had been sunk and asked him how he could have this information when some sections of the Admiralty didn't even know about it. So Firebrace told him all about Helen and the events of the seance. If he was believed or not, it's not known, but it definitely put Helen on the radar of the authorities. So she knew a ship had been sunk before they even released the information? Apparently so, and this wasn't the only time that this happened. So the second seance that got her into trouble took place in November 1941. This time the seance was held in Portsmouth. In the seance, a spirit of a sailor with the name HMS Barham on his cap appeared and told them that his ship had been sunk and that many had been killed himself included. His mother who was in attendance was shocked and claimed that this could not be true as she had not been notified to which the spirit of the sailor claimed she would be told in three weeks time before fading away. Concerned for her son she contacted the Admiralty who sent two officials round to question her and she told them about Helen. Now the Admiralty knew through, enig through the Enigma machine that the Germans thought only minor damage had been done to HMS Barham. In truth, the ship had been blown up a few minutes after being hit by a U-boat torpedo. But the Admiralty wanted to keep this a secret and didn't actually announce it until late January 1942. So how could she have known that? I have no idea. But you can certainly see why the authorities were concerned, especially as they were preparing for D-Day. So D-Day training didn't get off to the best of starts and several troops died. Given this need for secrecy, those in charge began to worry that the spirit of one of these dead soldiers could appear at one of Helen's seances and tell the sitters how and where he had died. And from that, someone would be able to guess where the invasion was to take place. Therefore, the Chief Constable of West Hampshire Police decided a, quote, better safe than sorry policy was needed. And as such, Helen was to be kept out of the way. 
So on the 19th of January 1944, the police raided the seance Helen was holding and arrested her under Section 4 of the Vagrancy Act, 1824. I mean, Helen was so famous that the BBC interrupted coverage of the Russian advance on the Eastern Front to announce news of her arrest, and the trial made headlines in like major newspapers. So this charge was later changed to contravening the Witchcraft Act of 1735, which covered fraudulent spiritual activity. The trial began on the 23rd of March 1944 and lasted until the 3rd of April 1944. Helen was unsurprisingly found guilty and determined to get Helen the maximum possible prison sentence of one year, Chief Constable West described her as, quote, a national pest and unmitigated humbug. And he divulged that Helen had disclosed the sinking of two ships before they were public. So she was guilty of pretending to conjure up spirits, but she was so accurate that she was also a threat to national security. Yes. How that worked has never been explained. And Helen was sentenced to nine months in Holloway Prison. Sentence was reduced to six months and she was released on the 22nd of September 1944. In 1951, the Witchcraft Act was repealed and replaced with the Fraudulent Mediums Act. And three years later, spiritualism was officially recognised as a legitimate religion by an Act of Parliament. So what happened to Helen? Well, despite spiritualism becoming a recognised religion, another of her seances was raided by the police. During the raid, they woke Helen from a trance. And when she was examined by a doctor after her abrupt wake-up, Helen had two second-degree burns the size of saucers on her stomach and breast, which caused her severe pain, and she was rushed to hospital. The burns never healed, and she died just five weeks later on the 6th of December 1956. Since her death, Helen has been considered a martyr amongst mediums and spiritualists, and a campaign for Helen to be awarded a pardon has continually been rejected. So, um, a little fun fact. A bronze bust of Helen was presented to the town of Calendar, but some local residents with religious beliefs disapproved of it being on display, and so it was removed to the Sterling Smith Art Gallery and Museum, where it is currently on display. I know when you first wrote your post on Helen that I was so confused, because I didn't realise that people could still be accused of witchcraft as late as Second World War. No, no, I wasn't either. I mean, when I first discovered Helen's story, I was instantly like, you know, when you come across something, you're like, I must know more. Yeah. I think she was the answer on some quiz show, and I was like, wait, that's real? Yeah, you just wouldn't have expected it, would you? No, definitely not. Especially, like, in the time, you know, we had people creating the Enigma machine, and yet they still believed that she could somehow conjure these spirits to spill secrets i mean how she knew that of the two sinkings when even some part some officials didn't know kind of beggars belief and i mean she was raided three times and the police found no evidence of, of trickery you can understand why people were so so worried about it though it's that thing again isn't it a fear of what you can't explain leads to a woman being punished like, even though it's many years later and we've moved on significantly, it, it's still fear led to this. Yeah. You want to think, oh, well, that would never happen to me. But then if you look at 
2020 for example and you think so we've had australia was on fire at the beginning of the year america's on fire in every sense of the word currently mm. you know we've had plague theoretically people have lost their jobs their houses loved ones if somebody said well the reason all of this has happened is because of that sect of people how long would it take to stir up fear yeah it wouldn't take long at all that's how minorities always preyed upon i think exactly and these women maybe not so much helen but you know the women in the early modern period were those who didn't or couldn't have anyone to defend them following helen does that mean that witchcraft was accepted no like i said it was illegal in the uk to call yourself a witch up until 1951 and in canada it remained illegal to call yourself a witch up until 2018 and even in parts of south africa now it's still illegal to call yourself a witch and what about today is it still witchcraft so many many people have said that witchcraft would die out however it's become a recognized religion with followers around the world and I was quite surprised to find that in the UK, it's the seventh largest faith group with over 53,000 followers. Many credit Doreen Filanti, known as the mother of modern witchcraft, with making Wicca the religion it is today. So who's Doreen Filanti? I mean, she is so cool. She was both a spy and a witch. So Doreen was born on the 4th of January, 1922. And her conservative parents divorced either in 1934 or 1935. After this, Doreen and her mother moved to Southampton, where, aged 13, Doreen began practicing magic. She performed a spell to stop her mother being harassed by a co worker. The spell was said to have made a blackbird follow this woman around and chirp at her continuously. Now, her parents became concerned about this kind of behavior and sent her to a convent school which Doreen despised, and at 15 she just refused to return. Although Doreen wanted to go to art school, she found employment in a factory before moving on to work as a clerk and typist at the Unemployment Assistance Board. Now, during World War II, Doreen worked as a translator at Bletchley Park, and as part of that work, she often had to travel to Barry in South Wales. There she met a Greek merchant seaman, and the two married on the 31st of January, 1941. Sadly, he was killed just six months later when his ship was sunk. So in 1943, Doreen was transferred to the intelligence service offices in London, where she met her second husband, Casimiro Valenti, a Spanish chef. In 1951, Doreen began corresponding by letter and in person with Gerald Gardner, the author of High Magic's Aid, who was considered the father of modern Wicca. Gerald worked at the Museum of Folklore on the Isle of Man and was the high priest of the Bricketwood Coven. Here's another fun fact for you. Before 1951, the museum was known as the Museum of Folklore. After 1951, it became the Museum of Witchcraft. But other than the name, nothing really changed. So on Midsummer's Eve 1953, Doreen was inducted into the Bricketwood Coven and took the name Ameth becoming High Priestess in 1955. She became displeased with Gerald quoting Alistair Crowley in their Book of Shadows because she was worried Crowley's bad reputation would tarnish their coven. If you're not familiar with Alistair Crowley, I suggest looking him up because he was all kinds of crazy. So Gerald basically told her if she didn't like it, she had to fix it, which she did by 
pretty much rewriting the whole book. This was not the only issue the two disagreed on. Doreen didn't approve of how public Gerald was, as they were small in number and there was talk of the Witchcraft Act being put back in place. So because of this, she left the coven along with Ned Grove, who became her high priest. With her own coven in place, Doreen sent Gardner a list of rules, one of which was that no one should give an interview unless they all agreed. Think rule one of witch club, don't talk about witch club type rules. Now, it took Gerald six months to reply to her. And when he did, it was with some old wicker rules that he had only just remembered to mention. And these were quite misogynistic. So these included things like the high priest being more powerful than the high priestess, and that when the high priestess began to age, she should just retire. And after this, the two spoke very little, but Doreen still supported him, saying that he was trying to do right, even if he went around it the wrong way. So after her mother died in 1962, Doreen was able to be more open about her belief and published her first book titled Where Witchcraft Lives. When her husband died in 1972, she began to publish more books. And although they only had a small print run initially, they're still in print today. And although she'd been critical of Gardner for being so public, she took part in the 1971 BBC documentary titled Power of the Witch, in which she conducted a, an ultimately unsuccessful ritual. I thought she was critical of Gerald because he was being too public with his beliefs. She was, but Claire Carroll on the Dead Ladies podcast suggests that there are two reasons Doreen suddenly became more open about her beliefs. One was the death of her mother and husband meant that she lost the two most conservative influences in her life. The second was that Wicca was gaining more popularity at the time, so she had more support. In 1971, she started the Pagan Front, which became the Pagan Federation International and became active in protecting religious freedoms. She would speak to MPs and she even formed a friendship with the Queen Mother, who flew her to Balmoral to warn her of attempts were being made to reinstate the Witchcraft Act. I mean, that seems an unlikely friendship, the Witch and the Queen Mother. So although Doreen had always been liberal in her beliefs, I mean, she supported LGBTQ rights, she championed women's rights and a woman's right to choose, and supported religious freedoms. There was a year and a half where she was a member of the National Front and the Northern League, both of which are far-right organisations. Now, some believe that she was still working as a spy and was actually undercover, but there's no evidence to support that. It just seems to be a year and a half blip, if you can call supporting the far-right a blip. In 1997, Doreen became the patron of the Centre for Pagan Studies and gave several lectures to its members. That same year, she spoke at the Pagan Federation's annual conference, and in what was to become her final speech, she praised, she praised Dion Fortune and urged the Wiccan community to accept homosexuals. Doreen died on the 1st of September 1999 of cancer. An all-night vigil was held for her in the Centre for Pagan Studies barn before her coffin was cremated at Brighton's Woodvale Crematorium in an intentionally low-key service with just John Bellum Payne, Doreen's last high priest, as celebrant for her life, and her ashes were scattered in the woodlands in Surrey. Although she's known as the mother of modern witchcraft or mother of Wicca, Doreen disliked it. 
There's no denying her influence on turning Wicca from a hobby of eccentrics into an international religion. And that's to say nothing of her work during World War II. Here's a fun fact, and this one is actually fun. Doreen was the first witch to receive a blue plaque, and she got it two years before Gerald, which is a, a win for women's rights. It was also the first time a blue plaque was placed on public housing. That's pretty impressive that she's not only got one two years before the man, but also it's been put on public housing. Absolutely. She's just an impressive character, really. Yeah, definitely. I love that she was a spy. A little eccentric. I just a bit. I think some of the best people are. Yes, true. I mean, if you're going to be a, a spy and a witch, I guess you kind of, and friends with the Queen Mother, I guess you kind of need to be quite eccentric. So today, pop culture is full of witches that are both hero and villain. But once they were considered a real threat that needed eliminating. And it's important to remember that whatever the final number, each of those who were accused tortured and executed were real people with real families who would have suffered horrific pain and as we've shown both in your part last week and this part every religion has some form of magical element within it a prayer or a spell can bring comfort a relic or an amulet can offer hope and sharing a belief with others can forge a sense of belonging i think we'd all do better to remember that as long as no one's being hurt respecting somebody else's belief can only make the world a better place. Next month on After Dark, we'll be looking at female killers. This was voted for by our listeners and patrons and Emily. Yeah, Gemma's not as excited about it and has to keep looking at pictures of ducklings to get her through it. As well as next month's After Dark topic, we're also going to have two bonus After Dark podcasts coming out, especially with Halloween. This podcast's been made with the support of our fabulous patrons, Jessica and Cara. And if you enjoy our content and want to join them in supporting us, you can head to our website, our social media, or you can click the link below in the description box uh, for more information on our patron. So we hope you can join us next month if I survive. As long as I don't run out of pictures of ducklings, I think I'll make it through. It's fine. I suggest we form a calming circle. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.